Attention, all troops. He's alive. Alive. Welcome to the Rapnolis. When the Dark Crystal came out in 1982. I had just made friends with this new guy at school I'd never been friends with before. He ran in a different crowd, had different sort of friends, and right around Thanksgiving, we both happened to be at this park hanging out together and kind of hit it off and started hanging out all up to Christmas break. And during Christmas break, we decided we were going to go see The Dark Crystal. Me, him, and my cousin, I believe, went with me. We saw the movie and we loved it. Later that day, I found out that this new friend of mine could do a dead-on impression of the Chamberlain from The Dark Crystal. The guy with the kind of high-pitched, mmm, gelfling sort of thing. For the next week, he did this dead-on impersonation almost every time we hung out, and it cracked me up every time. So, the new year starts, and we go back to school. And as I said, we didn't run in the same crowds, but we started hanging out together. And one of the big things that went on in my school was... Every recess period, we would play tag. There was a base. It was very complicated with big groups. And it was so many people playing that you often didn't know who you were playing with. You just knew who the opposite team was and who you had to get. But now I had this new friend, so we kind of hung out and hid in the same area of the yard. We did real well, and at the end of that tag period, I remember him and his older friends were talking, and I went over and started chatting with them, and... Somehow, the subject of the Dark Crystal came up, and without even saying anything, I said that you should hear his impersonation of the Chamberlain from the Dark Crystal. Now, the people he did hung out with thought that the Dark Crystal was rather childish, and that people shouldn't see the Dark Crystal, I guess because it had Muppets in it. He looked at me with daggers. Well, he had not properly warned me that I shouldn't tell people that he had seen the Dark Crystal. But he refused to do the impersonation. Everybody kind of looked at me strange, and he didn't really talk to me the rest of that day. The next morning at school, before it started, I came up to him to talk to him, and it's as if he didn't even know me. I said, hey, what's going on? And he laid into me, telling me I shouldn't hang out with him, that I was a little kid, and then he punched me in the stomach. Now, I took a lot of punches to the stomach in my youth, but this one kind of really hurt, because he wasn't a bully, he wasn't anyone older than me, he was someone who I had made as a friend. The moral of this story is that if you're going to see the Dark Crystal with a new friend and you have a compartmentalized life, share it with the different compartments of your life so that they know not to tell the other people that you saw a kid's movie. To me, I still love the Dark Crystal, and I still think his impersonation of the Chamberlain was dead on. It's a shame he didn't share it with them or that they couldn't appreciate it because that kid could rock the Chamberlain. On today's show, we're going to talk about The Dark Crystal. We're going to talk about the pre-production of the movie, how it came to be, the concept behind it. We're going to talk about the plot of the movie, the characters, the mythology, the reception of the movie, the way that the movie might have been influenced by another famous movie. And we'll talk about the releases on DVD and home video, and of course, the idea that there might be a sequel to The Dark Crystal coming out very soon. We have an info-packed episode ahead of us, so without further ado, let's start the show.
So those may be not familiar. The Dark Crystal is a 1982 fantasy film. Came out right before Christmas in that year and was directed by two people, two very famous people, Jim Henson and Frank Oz. You probably know them as the creators of The Muppet Show and they stuck together doing Muppets pretty much forever. Oz is also the voice of Yoda in the Star Wars movies. Now, the movie at the time was marketed as a family film, but it was much darker than standard family fare and was pretty much unlike anything that was seen at the time. To some people, that was a turnoff, but to the people who were fans of it, that is exactly what made it special. It was unlike anything we had seen before. The concept of the film was developed by Brian Froud. He was behind the look and feel of virtually every aspect of the film's production. The creatures, the landscape, even the opening title, all of that came out of the mind of Froud. Froud was born in England, Winchester, and graduated in 1971 with a degree in graphic design. He was probably best known before The Dark Crystal, and probably more well-known overall for his work on fairies, and they've done really well. And if you go to the store, you can see his stuff all the time. But in 1978, Jim Henson hired Froud to help create this unique world for The Dark Crystal. Froud and Henson would work together again on the 1986 film Labyrinth, but Labyrinth was not quite as dark, but had a lot of the Froudian influence in it as well. When pre-production began, it all revolved around Froud's work. But it's interesting because there was a misunderstanding. When Froud brought his concept drawings for the crystal to Henson, Henson didn't seem to understand what was going on. What had happened was that there was a miscommunication. Henson originally wanted the film to be called The Dark Chrysalis, which referred to the Skeksis' domination over that particular world and the coming of the light. Froud somehow misconstrued this and came up with the idea for the crystal. And so there is this concept piece that involved a crystal. Henson thought that was even better and integrated the idea of the crystal into the storyline of the finished product. I've read that Froud has a fascination with crustaceans and in the design of the film, particularly in the design of the Gartham, who were the henchmen of the Skeksis, you could see a lot of that fascination with crustaceans. The film would change from draft to draft, just like most films, but Fraggle Rock fans would probably be interested in this. In early drafts of the script, had Jen and Kira, the main characters in the movie, traveling through the underworld and encountering a race of underground mining creatures. The concepts from that, which would be dropped from the film, would later be integrated into Fraggle Rock. The film was shot at Elstree Studios, and the exterior shots were shot all over England and in Scotland. One of the unique things about this film, and why it seems so magical to some and can be off-putting to others, is that all the characters in the movie are elaborate puppets. So it was billed as the first live-action film without any human beings on screen. The hands and facial features of the creatures in the movie were way ahead of their time and were controlled through animatronics. At the time, this technology had existed for a while. It was still in its infancy, and remember, there wasn't a lot of remote control stuff that we could do today. Instead, there had to be puppeteers inside the puppets with rods and cables pulling and pushing, making the character do things. And this is exhausting work, because these costumes and all the pieces that were in them could be really heavy. In fact, when wearing some of these costumes, the characters had to be hung on a rack while still inside the costume to relieve the weight 
so that they could get through the day. A lot of interesting stuff went into the making of the film, including language. Originally, the Skeksis in the film spoke their own language, and we'll talk a little bit later about why that was dropped from the final cut of the film. As the narrator explains at the beginning of the film, the movie takes place on another world, another time, in the Age of Wonder. The planet they live on is called Thra. Thra has three suns, the Great Sun, the Rose Sun, and the Dying Sun. And the planet is filled with many different races. The dominant race on the planet were the Urskeks, who came from another world and are the guardians of the Crystal of Truth. The crystal harnesses the force of nature and can basically do stuff by the power of the three suns. 1,000 years before the beginning of the movie, during what's called the Great Conjunction of the Three Suns, the Urskeks cracked the Crystal of Truth, and they themselves split into two races, the hunchback gentle creatures, known as the Mystics, and the vulture-like rulers of the planet, the Skeksis. In that moment, the Crystal stopped being the Crystal of Truth and became the Dark Crystal. The Skeksis then drove the Mystics from the Dark Crystal, and decided that they were going to rule the world. But, even though they were rulers, there was a prophecy that said that the elf-like Gelflings would one day restore the crystal. So the Skeksis, realizing that the prophecy could be true, decided to round up and try to take out as many of the Gelflings as they can. Now, the specific prophecy reads, When single shines the triple sun, what was sundered and undone shall be whole, the two made one, by Gelfling hand, or else by none. What was sundered and undone shall be all the two made one. Now a little bit about the races of Thra. The most important for the characters in the movie are the Gelflings, and these are these slender, elf-like creatures with pointed ears. Female Gelflings have butterfly-like wings that can be folded to fit under their clothing. These wings can be used to slow a fall to allow for a safe landing, but no longer could be used for flight. In the Marvel comic adaptation of the movie, we actually learn that in the past, the female Gelfling could fly, but the wings have since become vestigial. Why anyone would want to give up flight is beyond me. The Gelflings one time had a huge civilization, but because of the Skeksis, their civilization has been reduced. In the movie, there are only two Gelflings that we meet, Jen and Kira, and of course they will be instrumental in fulfilling the prophecy of the Dark Crystal. Another race are the Uru, or the Mystics, as I mentioned before, and these are the opposite of the Skeksis. The Uru have four arms, kind of like dinosaur heads, and have white hair and tails. Brian Froud has described them as being a cross between a dog and a dinosaur. Of course, because they're the other half of the Skeksis, they have a similar look in body shape and have also aged tremendously, but are not hideous looking like the Skeksis. There are ten Uru at the beginning of the film, although the Uru are pretty much interchangeable and none of the characters really stand out. The Skeksis are the antagonists of the film, and there are ten of them. Brian Froud described them as part reptile, part predatory bird, part dragon. Like the Uru, they have forearms, but the two lower arms have become weak and atrophied, and are rarely seen. They pretty much can only be seen when all the clothing that they wear is stripped off, which happens to the Chamberlain, Skeksel. The Skeksis have kept themselves from dying of old age by draining the vitality from others. So they're kind of vampires in the movie. 
when the Dark Crystal is united, these creatures become one again and become the Urskex again, the original species. Only eight of them are represented by the end of the film, so I'm not really sure what happened to the other two. Maybe they're just off camera at the time. The Urskex are tall, luminescent, and kind of vaguely Gelfling-like, which is odd since the two species that they're made of really don't look very Gelfling-ish. So the Urskex originated on a world where moral imperfections were found intolerable. So originally there were 18 of them, and they were banished from their homeworld and entered the world of Thra via a portal, which was opened by the shining of the three suns on the Crystal of Truth. There they met another character who's important in the film, Agra, who had been badly burned by the intense heat given off by her close proximity to the conjunction. So they healed her in exchange for the knowledge of the planet, and in return they taught her astronomy, which figures into the movie. After that, they hollowed out a mountain containing the crystal that brought them to the world and created a magnificent castle around it. Some of the other races you meet in the movie are the Podlings, who are a race of gentle earth people who are native to Thra. They are called this because they tend to things that grow. They're kind of dwarf-like and yet very rounded, and they raised Kira as one of their own. The Skeksis, as I mentioned, pull their vitality out, and this leaves the Podlings kind of as weakened zombies, and the Skeksis continue to use them as slaves afterwards. Some other creatures are the Gartham, which are an imposing crustacean-like creature, which I mentioned Froud had a fascination with crustaceans, and they kind of exist just to kill and are sent after the Gelfling. Where they come from, nobody knows. Some have said that the Skeksis made them and that they're not native to Thra. Instead, they come from the Skeksis' homeworld and that the Skeksis recreated them, but to do real evil things on Thra. In the movie, there's also these really cool, bizarre land striders, which are these native forest creatures of Thra. They are these real long-limbed creatures, and they are the mount of choice for the Gelflings. And I really wanted one when I was a kid. So I've already mentioned a lot of the characters in the movie, but we'll get a little bit specific about them. Kind of leading the charge is Jen. Jen is a young male Gelfling, and kind of the protagonist of the film. Jen's family, like all Gelfling families, were killed. And Jen had the honor of being raised by the Uru, the mystics in their valley, who believed that he was the last survivor of all the Gelflings. He was educated by them. Later, he will, of course, meet the other Gelfling, Kira. Jen was voiced by Stephen Garlick. Of course, Jen wasn't the only Gelfling left. He would later meet Kira, who was being raised by the Podlings. Kira was voiced by Lisa Maxwell. She has a pet monster named Fizgik, who's kind of dog-like and very loyal to Kira. And I'm doing the air quotes here. Fizgik was voiced by Percy Edwards, a very important member of the movie who species is never mentioned, is Agra, who's a one-eyed, wild-haired seer who has the horns of the goat. As I mentioned, she was burned horribly when the Crystal of Truth was ignited. She is a keen astronomer, and she maintains an observatory set atop the high hill. Because she's so high up and has such a great knowledge of astronomy, she's able to predict the coming of the Great Conjunction, 
She also happens to hold the shard of the crystal, which is why the Uru send Jen to find her, to get the crystal, to reignite the crystal of truth. He is primarily portrayed by Frank Oz in a costume and was originally voiced by Oz in the original movie, but would later have her lines redubbed by Billy Whitelaw. When Oz did it, it kind of sounded like a hybrid of Fozzie Bear, Yoda, and Miss Piggy. The Skeksis are all pretty important, but the main antagonist is Skeksel, the Chamberlain. He's second in line to the Skeksis' throne, though he gets into a confrontation with Skekung and loses. This gets him exiled as a result. Skeksel was voiced by Barry Denon and puppeteered by Frank Oz. Anyone who's seen The Dark Crystal probably has Skeksel's voice indelibly etched into their brain. For me, I have a painful reminder of this voice whenever I see the movie from my wallop in the stomach. If you haven't seen the movie, here's what he sounds like. It's time to make my move. Pretty awesome, huh? Rounding out the puppeteers, you had Catherine Mullen, David Goles, of course Jim Henson, Kieran Shaw, Louise Gold, Mike Quinn, Tim Rose, and Brian Mule. The narrator of the film is Joseph O'Connor. And the movie went through a bunch of iterations before it was actually filmed. And when it came out, they showed it to test audiences. And there was a preview in San Francisco that was disastrous. Henson went back and trimmed 20 minutes from the film and ordered many of the characters' voices to be redubbed. And this is what I was talking about earlier, about the invented language of the Skeksis. They had to take that all out and replace it to make the film more accessible and the plot easier to follow. The invented language is rather complicated and very interesting. And you can actually hear parts of it in deleted scenes in the DVD releases, which we'll talk about. The Dark it begins as a quest you must find the shard the crystal shard the crystal shard to save our world guiltly a wonderful fantasy adventure journey into a mystical realm of sights and sounds. Enter the world of the Dark Crystal. What do you want to know? You want to know what this is all about? Is that it, Gelflin? Now from directors Jim Henson and Frank Oz and Gary Kurtz, the producer of Star Wars, comes a new dimension of fantasy and adventure.
travel to another world, another time, in the age of wonder. The Dark Crystal. When it was released, The Dark Crystal made just over $40 million in theaters and had a budget of $15 million. It probably would have done much better, but it was overshadowed by a little movie that was released that year, E.T. the Extraterrestrial. While it might not have rocked the box office, it was a critical success. It won a Saturn Award for Best Fantasy Film and earned the grand prize at the Avoriaz Fantastic Film Festival. The film was also nominated for a Hugo Award for Best Dramatic Presentation and a BAFTA Award for Best Special Effects. While it might not have shined as brightly as it could have in the U.S., it was the number one film in France and Japan that year, and it had outgrossed E.T. the Extraterrestrial as the most successful foreign film in Japan until Titanic would take the spot 14 years later. Almost as soon as the film came out, it gathered a cult following, and when it started getting heavy play on cable and would be released on VHS, the movie would really pick up new fans, and would continue to pick up new generations of fans every year. As I mentioned in the intro, there's a sort of controversial connection to another film, Star Wars. In the third draft of the original Star Wars film, the shooting script being the revised fourth draft, the concept of the Force is actually embodied in a large dark crystal on the Sith planet of Alderaan. I know it's kind of weird to hear these very familiar terms, but completely turned around. The Sith have all the fragments of the crystal except one, which is in the hands of the ancient Jedi Obi-Wan Kenobi. Luke Starkiller, that was his name then, uses this fragment of the crystal, which is called the Kyber Crystal, to guide his torpedoes down the shaft of the Death Star in the final battle sequence. Now Lucas cut the Sith subplot out of the film and removes the crystal manifestation of the Force, making it something that's inside you and would later make it genetic. Now the controversy about this, and the idea of the connection, is that Gary Kurtz produced both Star Wars and The Dark Crystal. It was a pet project of his that he was on right after he parted ways with Lucas after Empire Strikes Back. Kurtz was one of the few people to be involved in Star Wars in the rough draft stages of the story, so he knew about the crystal part. So some say that his being involved in both movies influenced the Dark Crystal to be more like this aborted version of Star Wars. And if you read these scripts and then watch the Dark Crystal, and these scripts are available online for you to read, you can see that there are scenes that are similar. And me, I think it's a bit of a reach although in very interesting reach. The Dark Crystal, decent success, and it had some things that spun off it. It had a novelization. It had a book titled The World of the Dark Crystal, which was written by the concept artist Brian Froud. It was released at the same time as the film and gave a lot of background into the world of Thra, and it's where I get a lot of the information for this podcast. There was an illustrated storybook version, The Tale of the Dark Crystal, which was written by Donna Bass and illustrated by Bruce McNally. Marvel Comics printed a comic adaptation of the movie a year after the movie's released. There were some manga books created in 2007 by Tokyo Pop called Legends of the Dark Crystal, which is an actual prequel to the movie. And in 1983, a video game based on the movie was released for the Apple II and Atari 8-bit, and it was a straight-up text adventure game. The Dark Crystal was first released on DVD on October 5, 1999, 
and since then has had multiple releases, including a collector's edition on November 25th, 2003, and a 25th anniversary edition on August 14th, 2007. It was released on Blu-ray on September 29th, 2009. And as I said, if you want to hear some of the dialogue, the special edition DVD and the Blu-ray disc feature several work print takes that show early passes at dialogue. So you get to hear Frank Oz's voice of Agra, and you get to hear the Skeksis speak in their foreign language. If you're a big Dark Crystal fan, you probably know that a sequel titled The Power of the Dark Crystal has been in pre-production for what seems like forever, but its IMDb date still says 2011. On May 4th of 2010, it was confirmed that the Spearig brothers will direct the upcoming sequel and that it'll be in 3D. There's no guarantee that the film will have live-action puppetry or how much input the Jim Henson Company will have in the film, but we can hope that there will be some. The Dark Crystal's magic is not only that it's a pretty decent story, but that it's a world that was created completely from scratch and inhabited by beings that didn't look like anything we had ever seen before. Sure, we'd seen Muppets, we'd seen puppets, we'd seen animation, but these were puppets brought to a different level. I'd love to see what the Jim Henson Company could do nowadays with this type of puppetry, but only time will tell what we'll get. I'm looking forward to it, and hopefully it'll be in theaters sometime in the next few years. This time I'll go see it, maybe by myself, and if I do see it with someone, I'll make sure they don't live such a compartmentalized life, because I really am getting tired of getting punched in the stomach. The sun is a mass of incandescent gas, a gigantic nuclear Thanks for listening to the show. For more retro fun, drop by the website at www.retroist.com. You can follow me on Facebook and Twitter. I'm at facebook.com slash retroist and twitter.com slash retroist. If you like discussing retro stuff, the Retroist has a forum, and it's packed with people who love to discuss retro topics. If you've got some time and want to discuss retro stuff, drop by the forum. It's easy to register, and I'd love to have you there. Thanks for listening to the show, and I hope you have a great weekend. We need its energy Without the sun, without a doubt There'd be no you and me The sun is a mass of incandescent gas A gigantic nuclear furnace Where hydrogen is built into helium at a temperature of millions of degrees the sun is hot it is so hot that everything on it is a gas iron copper aluminum and many others the sun is large if the sun were hollow a million earths could fit inside and yet the sun is only a middle-sized star The sun is far away, about 93 million miles away, and that's why it looks so small. And even when it's out of sight, the sun shines night and day. The sun gives heat, the sun gives light, the sunlight that we see. The sunlight comes from our own sun's atomic energy. Scientists have found that the sun is a huge atom-smashing machine. 
the heat and light of the sun come from the nuclear reactions of hydrogen, carbon, nitrogen, and helium. The sun is a mass of incandescent gas, a gigantic nuclear furnace, where hydrogen is built into helium at a temperature of millions of degrees. Mm -hmm. This has been a Rush Wrist production. Goodbye.